You are listening to the official Sasta podcast from the main man at Sasta, Jason Lemkin, at JasonLK on Twitter, and me, Harry Stebbings of the 20 Minute VC, at H Stebbings on Snapchat. Now, I'm super excited to welcome a heavyweight of the SaaS industry today, as we have Mark Organ, founder and CEO at Influitive, joining me. Now, Influitive helps B2B companies mobilize their army of advocates for more rapid and profitable revenue growth. And prior to Influitive, Mark was the founder founding CEO of Eloqua, growing the business to over 150 people, hundreds of clients, and a major presence around the world in just seven years. Eloqua was eventually bought by Oracle in 2012 for a reported $810 million. So without further ado, I'm delighted to welcome Mark Organ, founder and CEO at Influitive, to the hot seat. Good. That's perfect. Okay, I think we're warmed up. Well, Mark, it's absolutely fantastic to have you on the official SASTA podcast. Thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, I'm thrilled. Thank you. Now, um, I'd like to start by hearing a little about you and how you came to found Influitive and what the aha moment was for you. Sure. Well, I'm a serial entrepreneur. I've been starting businesses since I was a, a teenager. Before I founded Influitive, I founded another company called Eloqua. It's a marketing automation software company, one of the, the pioneering ones in the space, uh, founded in 2000. That company ended up doing pretty well. It, it went public in 2012 and, and was bought by Oracle. But I, um, while I was there at Eloqua back in 2005, discovered because of a smart VC who got me to get out in the field and really understand why and how people bought my software. When looking through and trying to study how people did this, what I, what I found was that really nobody bought our software, at least no one bought it quickly without having lots of advocacy around it. So typically there'd be multiple referrals on the way in and then there would be all the right case studies and testimonials on the website, really targeted references on the way out. And some of these customers would buy in just a few days instead of the typical few months. So I said, okay, well, let's go and get a lot more of this great advocacy stuff and started to put some processes around it. But what we found was that we weren't really able to get a lot of sustained advocacy. We might get a spike for a couple of months, but you know, if we put a referral campaign in, but uh, then it would just go back down to baseline again until uh, one day we created an award ceremony uh, called the Marquis, and, and we just had this flood of advocacy as a result, even though that's not we, what our intention was. And that's really when the light bulb went off for me that because we were giving these advocates these the feelings and experiences that they wanted, they were reciprocating the way that they knew how, which was to advocate for us. And I wrote that down in my black book as a, an idea to work on next because I wasn't going to get a chance to work on it at Eloqua, that we needed to create an Eloqua-like thing for, uh, for these special people, for advocates, and to give them the feelings and experiences that they wanted. And I would have then a chance to work on it um, a few years later. And, and by then, the need has just only become more extreme. Back in 2005, it was really before the age of social media had started. Uh, by the time I started the company in 2010, by then, we need advocates for all kinds of things, not just for referrals, case studies, and references, but uh, to share on social media, to generate more online reviews, which has become really mission critical for a number of spaces now in the uh, B2B software space that, uh, that we focus on. And in this brand advocacy space, I think it's fair to say that you're really creating a category with Influitive. So how was that category creation for you? Yeah, it's interesting. So I do talk about category creation quite a bit, although I really should 
talk about it more in terms of category discovery as opposed to creation. I believe that categories are created in the minds of very special people, special niches of users and customers. For the category creator, their job is almost like an archaeologist to, um, to go and discover what that category actually is. So I, I don't think marketing departments necessarily come together and put, put a three, another three-letter acronym together and say, hey, aha, here's our new category. Or at least that's, in my view, the wrong way to create one. I think that's, we've all seen kind of cringeworthy categories before that, you know, some, some Mandarin and a marketing department had dreamed up. I think there are special people out there that are benefiting from disruptive technology. And part of the job of the category creator is to identify who those people are, understand them in a huge amount of detail, understand what influences them, understand what, what drives their decision-making, understand what their needs are, their aspirations are, what inspires them, and basically build some software around those people. And if you do it right, you, know, you choose you know, a disruptive technology trend that really is here to stay. You know, so if you bet big on Second Life back in 2005, that was the hot new thing at that day. I mean, you would have not done very well. Um, you know, there, there, there weren't people in companies whose job it was to go and create a you know, virtual trade show or whatnot, although at the time that's what people thought. If you really get that right, pick a group of people that end up growing uh, numerous and powerful, then you can build a very large uh, category around those folks. And, and I think the marketing automation category is a great example of it. Actually, when, when we started Eloqua, that's not what the category was called. It was, it was called the automated demand generation. Um, the reason why it was called that was because the people who were doing that work, they called themselves demand generators. Didn't even like the name marketing. They found it pejorative. Those people were the, the folks that, uh, you know, were the arts and crafts people. <laughs> Whereas, you know, these people were demand generators. They had you know, measurable and repeatable and, you know, very analytical processes for generating demand. And so we saw this in company after company. We saw these very special people. We, we decided that this is the way of the future. There's going to be way, way more of these people in the future. So all we did at Eloqua was build software that these people needed. And that's why it was such a unique piece of software no one really had seen before, was because it really was built around their needs. I'm, I'm really intrigued that going back to the category creation, what were the challenges then, given the fact that there was no predefined path for the category that you were pursuing? I think one of the, the big ones, that I think it will be really salient to listeners of this podcast, is that you have to, I, I believe that the number one job of the category creator is to market the category. The category succeeds and Hopefully, you're also seen as the number one example of that category. That really means twice the marketing. Uh, it's, it's twice the marketing effort to basically brand both of those. So I think that's one issue. In Eloqua's case, we were bootstrapped. That was, that was quite hard. Um, we didn't have a lot of money for marketing, yet we were trying to promote the, the category first and then the company. Uh, we're doing the same thing at Influitive. Look at our website or trade show booths or whatnot. You'll see that we really are a category first company. You won't really find Influitive written in big letters. It's in small letters. The big letters is all about advocate marketing that we believe is the category that you know is, is salient. So that, that's one, I think that's one of the most important things is that it, it costs twice as much. And it also means that um, the CEO's attention can be divided 
the way that it works at Fluidive is that I am essentially the CMO of the category. So I run all category marketing. And our VP of marketing, Jim Williams, is in charge of company marketing. But that just means that our attention is divided. So I think that's one of the challenges. I think another one is that it's really hard to define who the enemy is. So I was around in the early days of Salesforce.com where you know they had uh, where they had Mark Benioff and other folks uh, picketing Siebel conferences with the no software sign. It was very clear who the enemy was, right? The enemy was no software and Siebel as an exemplar of that. It's very powerful when you have a common enemy to rally around, whether it's a company or whether, let's say in the case of Tesla, it's you know Detroit or big oil uh, as the enemy. It's um, nothing fuels the human passions, you know, like like having a good enemy. When you're building a category, it's unclear who the enemy actually is. And, and it's, uh, I think it takes quite a bit of work to, to, to define that. Mm-hmm. Um, in, in our case at Influtive, we think the enemy is, we call me too marketing. Companies who spend too much time talking about themselves instead of having their advocates do the talking for them. We think that's the enemy. Uh, but it's taken us quite a while to figure that out, actually, and to, and to define that. In, in category creation situations, is it not quite challenging in, in some respects where there's the potential for you to have a monopoly, which is, is not something that anyone ever likes to admit that they have? Um, I think that's a big problem. I think if you're a category of one, then you're not a category. We spend quite a bit of time and effort to encourage people to compete with us. When I'm speaking on stage, I often, I often speak at entrepreneurial conferences. I rally people. I said, please, we need more folks in the space. This is a big multi-billion dollar space. We invite all of you to innovate and join us. That just ends up driving more demand for everyone. Okay, the Marketing automation space did not really take off until Marketo and HubSpot entered the scene in 2006, 2007. And they helped to spur more demand for everybody, including for Eloqua. I'm sure at the time, and I was out of Eloqua at that time in 2000, uh, 2007, I left. But, you know, and I'm sure at that point, the uh, people at Eloqua weren't that happy about Marketo and HubSpot entering. But I think in hindsight, they would probably say it was a really good thing. It drove demand for everybody and created a multi-billion dollar category. So competition and alternatives are actually a good thing. And and a good category creator, again, is thinking about marketing the category first, nurturing the health of the category first. That means taking care of all the companies that are in it, including the competitors, the good competitors. Now, I will distinguish between a good competitor and a bad competitor because you do have both. So a good competitor is focused similarly on building the market, on growing the size of the pie instead of fighting over the crumbs. A good category creator really focuses a lot on delivering a high quality of customer service and and delivering customer success. Again, builds the market up for everybody. If there is a player in the space that is doing a bad job and is not making customers happy, that company needs to be killed <laughs> because they, it's not just that they're taking market share. That's not the problem. The problem is more that they are tarring the entire category. They are polluting everybody's water. There can be no mercy for companies like that. (laughs) But I mean, we've spoken about brand advocacy there and and often a common skepticism of of brand advocacy and building brand advocacy is the scalability of it as a solution. So how scalable do you think brand advocacy is as a solution? I mean, we don't call it brand advocacy, but that idea I think is is very scalable. Uh, The reason why is that advocates are multi-purpose. Uh, For those people who are computer scientists listening in, they are polymorphic. 
they are capable of doing multiple things. So the same advocate who might speak on stage at, on, at Saster for you or be on a webinar just like this might also retweet your material, give you feedback on your product roadmap and your marketing campaigns and give you a review online. Right? They are helpful from the very top of the funnel in generating awareness, building relationships through the middle of the funnel and then closing at the end and then even post-funnel. A number of our customers now are, are using our product to mitigate churn by connecting uh, forecasted churn accounts with, with, with advocates uh, because in many cases, uh, unhappy customers are much more willing to speak with one of her peers than to speak with one of your account managers. So I think that's what makes it so scalable. Whereas you contrast that to what I was doing at Eloqua, where really we were focused on a very small part of the value chain, right, which is around lead nurturing, sort of the middle of the, of the lead, you know, I guess lead generation or demand generation process. I mean, we talked a lot about lead generation, but really what we focused on was automating the lead nurturing process. Uh, and still, that ended up becoming a multi-billion dollar space. So here, we are active in everything from generating awareness to generating better events to doing uh, testimonials and videos and other reputation building things online, mitigating churn, helping to close deals. Advocates are really magical, remarkable beings. Uh, and it's about time that companies started to take it really seriously and invest in them because they are a very valuable corporate asset. What do you think the fundamental benefit of customer success is? I'm intrigued. Often people think it's just mitigating churn, but there's also forgetting the massive potential for upsell. So which one do you think is a bigger benefit, actually? Yeah, I mean, I've, I've said before that customer success really is a bedrock of a SaaS company. It's all the values built on top of that bedrock, on top of customer success. And I don't mean the customer success department, although they're important. I mean lowercase customer success, having customers generate real, measurable, and strategic and tactical value, all of those things. So I think it's really important. And I think you, you hit on, a, I think part of it is churn is really the part that I would call above the waterline. I mean, using an iceberg as a metaphor. So churn is the part of the iceberg above the waterline. It's, you know, it's one sixth of the iceberg, five sixths of the iceberg is sitting there below the waterline. And those are, when you, when you have a churn problem, you also have people who are talking in a marketplace, who are disrupting your deal cycles, who are lengthening them, letting your competitors in, right? So that's the part you don't see. You know, you, you might blame your sales leader and say, sales leader, why is your close rate so low? He or she may not even know. One of the problems may be all this back chatter in the marketplace, which is slowing everything down. It's really critical to make customers measurable strategic value. Wait, when do you think when do you think it's the right time to hire a customer success officer? It's often a, a tricky hire because it doesn't seem on paper like a pivotal, pivotal role, but it really is deep down. So is number two or three, four, or should it be eight or ten? In our case, it was our first non-engineering hire. Um, so I'm a proponent of having a head of customer success as the first executive. Um, so I hired mine when I had signed my first pilot, and this is for Influitive, and I had a pipeline of four or five more pilots that were coming. It was time to bring on a head of customer success. So one of the reasons why is that, first, they're very multi, they're multi-purpose, they're multifunctional. In the very early days of a SaaS company, Let's face it, those prospects, those customers, they're buying Roadmap, they're buying you, they're buying your team. Being able to bring in a head of customer success on a sales call 
provides a lot more comfort to the customer to sign on with a pilot, or e- even if it's free. Let's like people's people are busy, right? They're they're only going to invest their time, even if it's free pilot, uh, which we did do in the early days. Uh, they're not. They're only going to invest that if they really believe in your team. So, so I believe in hiring one uh, soon, and then when you actually do win the customers, they help you take care of them and um, get the CEO out of being in the client service business. I think that is a difficult situation for a CEO to be in. It, it really is good to have some accountability around someone else to to do it. So, so I believe super super early on on that hire. Uh, and it's especially true because of the value of customer success, right? It's not just churn, as you pointed out, and, and not even just upsells. It's in generating advocacy. That's how you're going to win your first few uh, customers. You're, you're not spending a lot on money on marketing. You may not even have a salesperson at that, at that stage. You've got a, a CEO that's selling, uh, and, and you have, hopefully, you've got a head of customer success who is doing everything humanly possible uh, to make sure that that customer is going to get real, measurable, meaningful value. And that is the bedrock on which you're going to raise a seed round or which you're going to hire more key people. So that, that's, that's my philosophy on it. Now, the head of customer success is not necessarily going to be somebody who's super experienced. right? They might have just been the best customer success person you've seen in, your, in another company. They might have been a team lead or, or even an individual contributor who's ready to step up. In fact, that was you know, the case with me. My head, first head of customer success, Julie Persofsky, she you know, was not a VP of customer success before. She was able to step in and grow, and uh, it was the, really the right kind of person for the stage of company we were at. And I'd love to jump into a 60-second Sasta now. So it's all quick fire where I say a short statement and you give me your thoughts in 60 seconds or less to each question. Okay. So thought leadership, fundamental or unnecessary, really? Fundamental if you're a category creator. And then target markets, go large or be specific and niche? As niche as possible. And, and the reason why is big markets are created by rolling up dozens or hundreds of niches. Company culture, how do you approach it and how do you make it central to your thesis? Company culture is critical, something that the CEO is absolutely responsible for. Uh, we make you know, the values of the company a part of every major decision that we make, uh, from hiring to promoting to what markets we enter into uh, is driven by the values of the company, which uh, generates our culture. Who do you most respect and admire in the industry? Oh, so many good people. Mark Benioff is very high on my list. I think he has created several categories now successfully, uh, and he is a master of reinvention, and I admire that. And then uh, kind of defensibility of of customers, customer protection, focus, or or is it fiction? Uh, Fiction for the first few years and then becomes a focus to protect from the inevitable horde of competitors that follow. And then your favorite SaaS resources, be it books, podcasts, learning materials, what's your favorite reading resources? Not just sucking up. I love Saster. I read every single article that comes out, and I always learn something. So um, that's not that's not being obsequious. I do love I do love the website. No, fantastic. Um, that's that's correct answer. Ten out of ten. There. Yeah, so that's good. Uh, I also I also love uh, David Scott's forentrepreneurs.com, which you know goes into a lot more depth than than Saster goes into, um, but also a great resource. And several of the VCs. Also write good stuff. It's not specific to SaaS, but specific to company building. You know, everyone from Mark Schuster to uh, Ben Horowitz, uh, 
uh, Fred Wilson are, are great reading. And I want to finish today on, on something that you've placed at the core now with Influitive, and that's the user experience. So, so talk to me about why you've placed it at the core when it wasn't at the core in the early days of Eloqua, and what convinced yeah. you of the power of, of UX. Well, part of it is, is learning the hard way what happens if you don't make it a focus of your company. <laughs> You know, you know, it's funny because when, when there's return problems, the CEO typically looks to the customer success department as a place to fix it. And, and, and that may be a good place to put a Band-Aid on a problem, but that doesn't fix the underlying sickness, not the underlying injury. And that's often done in a product. And it's really hard to retrofit a product. It's much better if you build it right the first place. So, yeah, we had the insight right from the beginning that the advocate experience, which are who our users are, is going to be how we're going to be successful. And and we knew that if the advocates were um, enjoying themselves, that they were going to go and generate a lot more activity and then customers are going to generate the value from from that. Um, So it's something that is core and fundamental. We embed UX resources in uh, or people in every one of our squads. So every squad has got a UX uh, researcher that is constantly testing and experimenting. Um, We've built that right into our platform itself. And it's one of the things that I would really encourage SaaS entrepreneurs is to build the facilities for UX research right into your product so that you can test your ideas and you can see what works better. Because in many cases, really, we don't know until we try. And talk to me, can that be addressed over time? You know, can I build a really shitty UX MVP and then iterate on it over time? Or does it need to be the perfect UX from the beginning? It absolutely can be iterative. I do think that having at least a decent initial guess is valuable. But I'm a, I'm a big believer in testing, experimentation, and iteration. But I do think that having at least somebody with the design sense in the early days is really useful. So that the initial guess is closer, and it allows you to iterate to the right place faster. And also, it's very difficult to have a fundamentally different UX than what you started with. It's just it's hard for human beings to do that. So I would say you need to be directionally correct in your initial guess onto the, into the UX. And if you do user research right, you know, users should really tell you what it is that they're that are valuable to them. They'll, they'll give you some of the experiences that they really enjoy, and, and often you can you can leverage that. So I think even before you get to design, you really need to go deep on users. That's why I call it user research, right? Understand what users really want and value by understanding them as human beings and trying to. I guess figure out what their mental model is of the world. Like we now have a really good sense of what the mental model is for an advocate and what how they think of the world. We understand their psychology. And once you understand their psychology, it's a lot easier to build things uh, that they're actually going to enjoy. And then final question, how do advocates think of the world then? If you know you figured it out at Influitive, what's the commonalities in how advocates uh, are incentivized and how they think of the world? Now, a great question, and it does vary on personas. We actually have several different advocate personas that we've identified. Um, but the one thing that we have found in common is that the reason why advocates do it is because it makes them feel good. Now, different aspects make them feel good. Some people feel good about uh, they have a competitive streak and they really want to be number one advocate. There's other people who are very achievement-oriented and want to see you know, the you know, results of what they create. Others are very social and want to meet other advocates. But the fundamental thing that we've seen is that they advocate for these soft factors, for recognition, for social capital. And uh, we think that advocacy is actually quite a primal thing. I mean, there's a reason why they, all human beings you know, do it. I think it's an adaptive trait. 
it, it helps, you know, when we advocate for things that we really care about, we're building relationships with the people that we're advocating for and to. So that's, that's the common element. People feel good when they advocate, and we try to help them maximize those good feelings that they have. Well, Mark, thank you so much for coming on the show today. It's been absolutely fantastic to hear about your journey now with Influitive. I couldn't be more excited for customer success as a category myself. So thank you so much for sharing that with us. Oh, thanks, Harry. I enjoyed it. A huge hand to Mark for giving up his time today to join us on the show and amazing to hear his work with Influitive and such exciting times ahead for them and for Mark. And do not forget, if you do not want to leave the world of Sasta, then you can follow Jason on Twitter at JasonLK and me on Snapchat at HStebbings. As always, thank you so much for your support and I look very forward to bringing you Friday's episode.